0: hello and thank you for listening to the at tapes a podcast from the journal of athletic training The goal of this podcast is to interview researchers and clinicians on current topics facing athletic trainers and discuss how we can utilize best practices to improve patient outcomes. My name is Lizzie Elder, and I will be your host for this podcast. I'm the Athletic Training Program Director and an Associate Professor at the University of Alabama, and I have a research interest in shoulder and elbow injury prevention in youth overhead athletes. You can follow me on Twitter at eeelder85. Before getting started on today's episode, I wanted to remind everyone that all content from JAT is open access, meaning it is free of charge to all readers, thanks to funding from the National Athletic Trainers Association. In today's episode, we have Dr. Samantha scarnio Miller from West Virginia University joining us to discuss issues related to policy adoption and implementation, and specifically her article in the May issue of the Journal of Athletic Training titled Adoption of Lightning Safety Best Practice." says policies in the secondary school setting. Samantha, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here.
0: So we are excited to learn a little bit more about um, the lightning policy adoption stuff that you've done and policy adoption overall. But before we start, I just want to learn a little bit about you. So can you tell us um, a little bit about your educational background?
1: Sure. I did my undergraduate uh, degree in athletic training from the University of New Hampshire, and then I did my master's PhD at uh, the University of Connecticut in exercise science with a focus on best practice adoption, sudden death in sport, and public health application to sports medicine. I also did a postdoc fellowship with the Corey Stringer Institute, also housed at the University of Connecticut, Um, where I served as the vice president of sports safety aimed at helping high schools, youth leagues, colleges, anybody to improve their policies and procedures, best practice adoption, and really did some in-depth research on best practice adoption during my time there.
0: So why did you become an athletic trainer?
1: I love that question. So I um, had a knee, a, a patella dislocation at the age of 10. And then I got my first surgery for it when I was 12. Um, I had over 50 subluxations over a period of about seven years or so, um, another four total dislocations, and had another surgery at 16. And at that point, I um, had to end my athletic career. Um, During that time, I ended up working at a physical therapy clinic Their thing was I was there all the time anyway for rehab. So why not hire me? (laughs) And um, so I was working there and learned to love the profession of athletic training and wanted to get into healthcare so that I could help other athletes to not have to end their athletic careers early.
0: Well, it worked out that uh, you have those injuries, I guess. Tough, uh, tough beginning, but Yes. (laughs) Um, So uh, you already mentioned this a little bit, but can you talk some about how you got interested in the research areas that you're now focusing?
1: Yeah. So when I was at UNH, I was the student that was asking a lot of questions about why are we doing this? What are we doing? Like, is is there actual evidence to support this or did you just come up with it? And my professors at UNH kind of looked at me and said, hey, you need to do a research study to figure out those answers because you're asking a lot of questions and you need to go figure it out. Um, so it got me really interested in research because I could find that if I did a study, I could get some answers. Now I know that one study is not going to give me all of the answers, but it at least taught me that if you do the methods, if you put the time in, if you work with patients and, and participants, that you can really get some cool data to support the why that I kept asking. So then, when I got to the University of Connecticut, I was put at a high school in the middle of Hartford, classical magnet school. And when I got there, I was a half GA for the school, at a very low SES community. Um, really had uh, very little resources to be able to work as an athletic trainer there. And when I got there, they they had a. Uh, not great emergency action plan. And there was no policies and procedures. The coaches really had no idea what the athletic trainer did. And there was a lot of things that I kept finding, really just scared the bejeebies out of me as an athletic trainer that somebody was going to die in my first few months there, because I felt like there was a lot of things that we didn't have in place. So I spent the first four months of my GA ship, not even working as an athletic trainer, because I didn't have standing orders yet still trying, I was still trying to find a physician to sign them, um, which was a whole different podcast, probably. Um, But I I was developing policies and procedures and emergency action plan and really getting to know my coaches. So from that point, I was like, that was really hard to try to develop all those policies and procedures. I had I felt like I had no idea what I was doing. I was very fortunate to have Dr. Doug Casa at KSI and, and other friends and resources around me to help me to develop them. But I Just kind of fell in love with the whole policies and procedures thing and developing them and wanted to see what other athletic trainers were doing and then see if there wasn't a way for me down the line to develop strategies to make it easier to do all that because it was a lot of work and it probably didn't need to be as much work as it was.
0: Well, I think a lot of new students would agree that the policies part it, or newly certified um, the policies part is is always challenging. So I think this work is really important for current professionals and young professionals to ensure that um, they're upholding the standards of the profession. So you've kind of talked a little bit about how you got into athletic training, your educational experience. Um, And now you are an adult, you are a um, program director at West Virginia. So can you hit on some of the highlights of your professional career?
1: You know, really, I I think some of the highlights are basically when an athletic trainer, an athletic director, a high school, somebody calls me and says, Hey, Sam, thanks so much for helping me with my policies. We actually had a heat stroke the other day, and we were able to implement the policies and the kid lived. Or they'll call me and they'll be like, oh my gosh, like we implemented our emergency action plan and the kid's fine. Like there's no issues, like whatever it is. You know, when I get those types of calls, it makes me feel like I'm actually doing things to benefit our patients and like seeing that direct out um, output. I also have worked with a lot of youth organizations. i serve on the sports science, um, Sport Safety and Science Board for USA Lacrosse, which is a huge honor of mine. I played lacrosse in high school. Um, I was really excited to be invited to, be, to participate on that. And then I also work with USA Wrestling. So a quick story about that. I was with, we had a meeting with all of our youth sport safety governing bodies um, down in Dallas, Texas. And I was chatting with my friend from USA Wrestling in the lobby of the hotel and he was like hey can you help me develop an emergency action plan that we can use in all of USA wrestling I said sure so him and I sat there for about an hour and a half wrote this up two years later he called me he's like you're not going to believe this i required the emergency action plan for all events they had a cardiac arrest they used the emergency action plan and the kid is living and he was just he was crying he was so happy it had happened that day he was not at the event. It was somewhere, some other state. And for me, that was just so gratifying that we could help to develop these emergency action plans with people who had no idea what they were before, but we could actually like make a difference that way. So I think those are really my my biggest professional accomplishments when I get those personal call, phone calls saying, hey, thanks so much.
0: So I think that that really leads into my next question, which is asking a little bit about your research um, and, and also how that applies into... Um clinical settings, um, but your research really focuses on policies overall and how athletic trainers or individuals adopt these best practices at uh, best practices. So you can can you talk about why this type of research is so important to our profession um, and the patients that we serve and how we can use this information to educate future professionals?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So over the last 15, 20, 25, depending on which topic area we're talking about years um, we have seen a huge increase in literature to support best practice adoption for preventing sudden death in sports so you look at the lightning literature and how that has evolved in the last 15 20 years and you know how those best practices have, have evolved for us to prevent kids from you know getting struck by lightning the heat stroke literature, especially with rectal temp, cold water immersion, a lot of that stuff has changed. Um, even cardiac arrest, how quickly to get an AED on somebody, how to make sure that you streamline communication for improved patient outcomes. Of course, traumatic head injuries, um, not just our, our concussions, but really our big scary stuff like brain bleeds. Um, we've seen all of this literature kind of explode and seen that this these best practices do save lives. But then when when I was having conversations with people, or when we were having conversations with people, we were finding that a lot of people were not actually writing these down into policies, or they weren't doing them at all at their high school specifically. And we were, we were kind of finding anecdotally, but then we had a little bit of literature to say, I don't think people are actually doing this. And that's how I got into kind of this first phase of my research agenda of, Okay, let's figure out what people are doing. We call it adoption because we are asking people through a questionnaire, what are you doing? Um, And this is different than implementation because we're not going out to the schools and seeing what they have written. We're not um, we're not necessarily checking to see how they're doing it. Um, And then, of course, fidelity and compliance are different as well, meaning how well are they doing it? But we felt we need to start at adoption adoption of best practices to see what people are telling us they are doing so once we have a good baseline of that which I think we're, we're pretty close if not there to having a good baseline of what people are doing for best practice adoption for the top causes of sudden death in sport which are head heat oh my gosh head heart heat hemoglobin which account for over 93 percent um we have that so now we can move into kind of this next phase Um, I think this is really important for us as athletic trainers and as a profession, because it helps us to identify areas that we might be struggling in, and maybe gives us some ideas of how to advance in the future of what we need to move into to uh, improve best practice adoption.
0: And as a fellow program director, um, I also think these types of articles are really helpful in understanding where young professionals or even not young professionals are struggling when they're actually working. You know, they, we teach them these things in the program um, through their educational program, but what do they actually, how do they actually apply that information or do they, um, and then how can we change how we're teaching um, to better help our students use those policies correctly? So specific to lightning, um, your recent article in JAT was on the adoption of lightning safety best practice policies in secondary school settings. And this was focused on a- evaluating the adoptions of those lightning policies and some of the factors that influence the development of a comprehensive lightning safety policy in secondary schools. So, can you discuss the methodology that's used general in general in policy adoption studies and anything specific to this study?
1: Yeah, so when we see policy studies, um, you know, not just from my own team's work, but also other uh, amazing researchers around the nation and uh, the world, really, we're seeing a lot of survey research being done on this. And for my team specifically, the reason that we're using um, survey research is because we're trying to get this baseline adoption of what's being written at high schools. And to do that and to be able to get a larger, larger sample size, um, That's where we see surveys being somewhat beneficial. Um, We do see low response rates from athletic trainers historically, but we're still getting a good amount of uh, data and and a good national sample. So those surveys are able to show us a little bit of adoption of what's going on at the high school. Um, Of course, I, I mentioned this in my last answer. Adoption is different than implementation, which is different than compliance and fidelity. We're really looking at adoption or what the athletic trainers are telling us. Um, In this study specifically, we developed a questionnaire using the NATA um, position statement about lightning in 2013. Uh, Katie Walsh Flanagan was a author or the first author of that publication, and she joined us on the research team for the study, which was really exciting. So we framed those questions using the NATA position statement to identify what the minimum best practices were that should be in a policy for lightning safety. And then we also use something called the precaution adoption process model, which is a health behavior model to identify readiness to act to put those policies in place. So not only do we want to identify what the best practice is, but we also want to identify if they're not doing it. Why are they not doing that? And that's why we felt the PAPM or precaution adoption process model could help us with that. So we could identify readiness to act of these athletic trainers if they're not putting it into place. So readiness to act in this model, PAPM, ranges anywhere from unaware to maintaining. So they could be unaware for the need for the policy, unaware if they have the policy, um, decided not to do the policy. They could be not sure if they're going to do the policy, decided to do it. There's eight different stages. And those data can help us with future interventions so that we can address that. Uh, in this study, we sent it out cross-sectionally. So we sent it out at one time point um, and asked people to respond to the questions as truthfully as they could based on whatever policies they had at their school. Um, so really, that's been the method that we've been using for a lot of our policy studies lately. And we're finding pretty good success with that. Well, We'll come back to whether or not it was a good idea once we start getting into the implementation stage of our research agenda. But for now, we've been seeing some good success with it.
0: i will also give the plug to any listeners that when you get the email asking to fill out a survey to do it, <laughs> because it's, yes. it's useful in, in the, um, for the profession, all the reasons that we've talked about. So I'll go ahead and give that plug.
1: Thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs>
0: Um, So in the results of this, you guys found that about 70% of athletic trainers reported maintaining and utilizing a comprehensive lightning policy. And I think that 70% number sounds really great. But then the more you think about it, that means that there's still a lot of people that either did not have a comprehensive lightning policy or were utilizing outdated policies. Um, So can you discuss some of the facilitators and barriers to adopting a comprehensive lightning policy?
1: Yeah. So first, I'm just going to define comprehensive. So we defined comprehensive in this study as having four components outlined in the best practice document. And these are all in the paper. So I'm not going to spend time going through it here. But comprehensive to us was having all of those components, not just evacuating the field, not just having a policy, but having all of those components together. So we also we asked athletic trainers, you know, if you have a policy, that's phenomenal. How did you get this policy in place? What facilitated this? Or if you don't have a policy, what barriers have you encountered? And we actually asked that whether they had a policy or not. So if they said they had a policy, we still asked facilitators and barriers because it's important for us to know if they were successful to have a policy, what barriers did they overcome to get to that point? So the most common facilitators we found were a state mandate from the State High School Athletics Association support from an an authoritative person. So your athletic administrator, your principal, and then having a medical professional there. So basically athletic trainers are saying, yeah, having me there was a big facilitator, which was awesome. And I'm glad that we can at least see our value in that. So going back to the state mandate from the state high school athletics association, this would be the state high school athletics association saying, you have to have a plan in place to evacuate the field for lightning. And Hopefully, that state mandate or that state requirement is telling you what to do and how to do it. So basically, what our athletic trainers are saying is when the state says I have to do it, that's when I'm more likely to do it. And that was encouraging to us because then instead of trying to go after 22,000 high schools, we can go after 51 states and see if we can help to change policies that way. Another facilitator they mentioned was having support from their administrator makes sense for all of us when my administrator or my supervisor supports me in something I feel like I'm going to be more successful in doing it because I have their backing to do it if they if they tell me that they do not support me then me doing it is going to be really difficult for a bunch of different reasons you know maybe I'm hesitant because I might lose my job maybe I'm hesitant because I don't have anybody on my side to help put this into place um you know, whatever the the reason is, having support from that administrator, from that supervisor, is critical to make sure that you're getting community buy-in. So there's something called a sociological framework, which is basically five levels that all interact with each other that help us to identify areas to improve upon. So from an individual to an interpersonal, which is where athletic trainers, athletic directors, coaches might be. Um, Organizational might be your school nurse, your principal environmental and athletic training. This can be simply as how hot is it outside? Are there potholes on my field? Or it can be social and cultural norms. And then at the top of that is policy. So having an administrative administrator supporting you can help from that organizational to interpersonal level, but also with the policy level. So all of it's kind of coming together. The barriers, most of them said they have no barriers. So for the 70% that did adopt a comprehensive emergency uh, lightning policy, excuse me, that's great. And I'm glad you were able to do that. But then we also have a little bit of a concern of, did you really have no barriers or did you just find this to be a very important policy that you just put blinders on and didn't see the rest of the barriers? So that was an interesting question for us to think about. Why did they say that for those that said that they do have some barriers or they have, overcome some barriers. The most common ones there were resistance from a head coach and then financial limitations. Um, So if it's okay, I think I can just go into how do we address those barriers? So resistance from a head coach, if we set clear expectations up front of what we're going to do to evacuate the field, when we're going to evacuate, who makes that decision, so we call that unchallengeable authority, then we can Address those concerns up front and and have communication strategies that can help to mitigate them. So having those conversations before the season starts is really important. If a thunderstorm is supposed to come in today. So in West Virginia, I think we're supposed to get storms today. So if I were to go to a coach this morning, it'd be good that I went to him or her or them before this morning. But if I tried to go to them at 3 o'clock for a 3.30 practice and say, hey, coach, there might be some storms rolling in and this is how we're going to evacuate, coach might not be very receptive to that because they're about to get ready for practice. So having that conversation before the season is really important to make sure that you're on the same page. You could also include your coaches in your development of your policies. Now, they are not healthcare professionals, so they cannot tell you what to do or what best practice is. So if they come to you and say, let's use Flash to Bang, but we know that's now... 8 years plus outdated then we're going to you know tell them you know coach we can't do that because it's not best practice this is what we're going to do but why don't we talk about how we're going to do some strategies to implement that that can help them to get buy in to your own policies the other limitation that has been identified is financial limitations now fortunately policies are zero cost it doesn't cost anything to just write down a policy and to be proactive and deliberate about that policy So that's a good thing. Now it does take some of our time, but fortunately we are paid and we have administrative duties hopefully built into our contracts so that we can, you know, support that time that we're writing these. But then the other thing with lightning that's great is the 2013 position statement says that see it, see it, flee it, hear it, clear it are the best practices for when a lightning storm is approaching. So that means you're using your eyes and your ears in order to clear your field, you don't need a fancy technology, you don't need some system that's attached to your school to see when the lightning's approaching. So you can really make a best practice decision using zero money in order to make sure that your athletes are safe. So those financial limitations, I understand everybody's always saying money, money, money. But fortunately, when we look at policies, it really doesn't cost any money to be proactive and deliberate in what we're going to
0: be doing. Thank you for kind of going over the results of that study. And I do want to highlight to the listeners that the full text of the article is linked. And so if you are, you know, thinking, reading this article and wondering if you have a comprehensive lightning policy or what things that you could do better at your own school, um, I would encourage you to go look at that because that, the individual questions are included in there as well as some recommendations. So you can do some some self-reflection in that. So you've already talked about some of the barriers and how this could impact um, education and how we can work with coaches um, to have better policies with this. Um, Is there anything else that this study identified about needs for athletic trainers, athletic training education that were identified? Yeah,
1: and I'm going to kind of link this back to something you said previously. You know, us as program directors, we can use these data for our professional programs, for post-professional programs. To really identify that we do have actually a large amount of athletic trainers who are adopting these best practices. So it could be showing us that whatever strategies we're using in the classroom is being effective when we're seeing a translation to, to clinical practice when they do graduate from our programs. Or if the athletic trainers have been practicing for a while, we're seeing that maybe, maybe it's a cultural norm to have. A policy, and that's what's facilitating lightning um, adoption. So I think we can really learn from these data that shows us what we're doing successfully with lightning that we might be able to apply to other areas that maybe we don't see as high adoption. Uh, I think it's really important to praise athletic trainers for doing an amazing job with the adoption of these policies. I mean, yes, we're seeing that uh, about three in 10 athletic trainers do not have a comprehensive policy, which is Worrisome, but you got to think of them on the positive here. Seven out of ten do have it, so let's see if we can do more praising of those and see if we can see if they can help other people. So I think this is really identified where we can praise athletic trainers for the amazing work, but then also identify, you know, what made this successful and how can we apply that to others. But then also for those that are not doing it, maybe we can find some maybe mentors to help the others to uh, improve their own policies.
0: So you mentioned using some of the results of the lightning study uh, of this study um, to help with other policy adoption that you see lower adoption rates on. And so you've obviously looked at a lot of um, policy adoption in uh, relative to sudden death. So how do the results of this study um, differ or are similar from previous work that you've done on those other areas of sudden death?
1: Yeah, so I'm going to focus on heat stroke for this answer or heat illness, I should say. So for this study, we find about 70% adoption of a comprehensive policy for lightning. For heat illness, we see 3.9% comprehensive adoption for heat acclimatization. We have 28% adoption of comprehensive environmental monitoring policies, 17% for EHS diagnosis and management. And those numbers, significantly lower than lightning policies, which is very concerning for us because heat stroke is the second leading leading cause of death in July and August, third leading cause of death in the other months. Lightning, yes, it has caused death at athletes, but it's pretty low on the list compared to exertional heat stroke. And yet we're seeing much lower adoption rates in exertional heat stroke. We're also very concerned in exertional heat stroke because these are adoption rates and we don't know if adoption equals implementation when we go and find implementation studies or we start our implementation studies, are we gonna find that these numbers are actually significantly lower than what we're seeing? So 17% of athletic trainers have a comprehensive uh, heat stroke management and, and treatment policy. So this includes rectal temp, cold water immersion available, cold water immersion set up, cool first transport second, all that jazz. So are we gonna find that those numbers are actually lower than 17%? And if we do, How are we going to fix that? How are we going to address those significantly lower numbers? So I'm I'm hoping that we can learn from the lightning data and see if we can't translate that over to to, uh, exertional heat illness. We are seeing similar trends for spine. Spine is probably in between heat and lightning right now with adoption rates. I haven't finished those manuscripts, so don't quote me on that if it comes out differently at the end. But we're really just seeing what we can do to help heat right now, because it's scary, scary low.
0: I think that's, um, I guess, a good thing that you're able to use the lightning policy to our data to help inform um, some of the others and hopefully learn from some of those successes of what can do that. Um, And like you said, scary that that that's the need. Um, So hopefully as um, there's continued work in these areas. We see these changes uh, that ultimately impact patient outcomes and, and not just, um, you know, do they get to play or not, but do they get to live or not? Yeah. <laughs> so you've really highlighted several of these already um, on some of the upcoming projects or work you have on um, in this area or policy adoption overall, but is there anything else that you wanted to add about kind of where you're going?
1: So now that we have a pretty good understanding of where we are with the adoption of these policies and the factors influencing them. So health behavior, social determinants, um, facilitators and barriers, we can now start looking into two different things. We can look into uh, implementation rates. So what are they actually doing at their schools and see if that's similar or or different than what they're telling us that they're doing? And then also, it's time that we start developing strategies that are evidence-based to help athletic trainers to improve these policies. Yeah, finding that there's deficits is good for us to know, but we can't just sit here and say, oh, there's deficits, there's deficits. We have to do something to try to see if we can help with it. And it can't be throwing spaghetti on the wall. It has to be some type of scientific evidence-based strategy to help improve it. So what we're trying to do is to develop a knowledge transfer program where we can help at train athletic trainers on how to evaluate policy and how to improve policy at their own schools, And seeing whether or not this expert-led, clinician-led program can help to improve policy adoption and implementation that way.
0: That's a a big task to do, but I think will have a big impact on the profession and um, be helpful for people to really understand their own policies even more. So as we finish up the podcast today, I want to give you the chance to give us some take home points or your key points um, from policy adoption research or the lightning study.
1: Sure. Thanks. So I think I'm going to boil it down to three things. Number one, keep up with best practices. There are new position statements, consensus statements, interassociation task force published yearly on on JAT's website. Also, have been put onto the NATA website. It's really important that we continue to keep up with those. For those of you who are listening, um, three new consensus statements just came out about heat illness that came out last month um, in JAT. Check those out, see what's in there, see what we can do to help. That's been really fun. Number two, make sure that your policies are written. By just talking about it and telling somebody, well, yeah, I have a lightning policy, but you don't have it written down. That's not helpful. If you write it down, you can make sure you're deliberate and proactive with your thinking. And that way you can show people a physical document about what you have. Number three is don't try to create policies by yourself. Reach out to researchers, clinicians, friends, NATA. reach out to the Corey Stringer Institute. Ask people for help. I can tell you that if you were to read this lightning policy paper and send me an email and say, hey, I read your paper. I want to improve my lightning policy, but I don't know where to start. You're going to probably make my day, if not my week, because I'm going to be so excited that you reached out to me so I can help you. All I want to do is help people. So if you reach out to me, or I would almost bet any other researcher, especially athletic training researchers, we would love to help you with whatever your question is. Even if you need access to a template or reaching out to somebody else, please just reach out and ask questions. Don't feel like you have to go about policies by yourself because even though every school is going to have a slightly different policy based on your location, your fields, your sports, your maybe your resources, it's going to be very similar across them because best practice is best practice. It's just how do you implement that? That might be different. So number one, keep up with best practices. Number two, make sure you have written policies. Write it down. And number three, reach out to people for help. Don't do this alone.
0: Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today and sharing with us. Um, And I also want to thank you for being so relatable and approachable about this topic, because I think that's really um, important as you try and get research and make these changes um, is being accessible to the end users, which are the people that are in the high schools or really making these policies. So um, thank you for the work you're doing and the approach that you're taking in doing it.
1: Thanks so much for having me. This was so much fun.
0: I hope you all found this podcast informative and that you can utilize the clinical recommendations to improve patient care and evaluate your policies. That's it for today's The AT Tapes. Please remember to rate and subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Also, please follow the Journal of Athletic Training on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at JAT underscore NATA on all three platforms. Thank you for listening, and I hope you will join us for next month's episode of The AT Tapes.